Shut up and sit down. Welcome to another episode of the Super Movie Studies Podcast, a show about comic book movies approached from every angle in a community of nerds discussing how fiction relates to non-fiction. I'm your comic book culture host, Michael Maurer, joined by the movie maestro, James Keller Hutzman, and the scientific scholar, Grant Austin. SMSP is your premier movie discussion podcast. Every week we continue our journey exploring our favorite subject, superhero movies. Every fan sees the movies differently, so we gather some amateur experts to discuss certain aspects of the movie. Whether it's money, comic books, music, science, or the death of comic book films, SMSP talks about it all in this week's episode. Do I have the pleasure of addressing Alan Quarterly? The Empire needs you. To lead a team of unique men like yourself, there is great unrest. Countries set at each other's throats, baying for blood. It's a powder keg, a world war. That notion makes you sweat. Doesn't it you? This is Africa, dear boy. Sweating is what we do. It appears the war has arrived. I'm in. There have been other times when a danger upon the world required the services of singular individuals. Nations are striking at nations. Every attack marked by the use of highly advanced weaponry. They've discovered these attacks are all the work of one man who calls himself a phantom. Newest generation of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Alan Quartermain, Captain Nemo. Rodney Skinner. Gentleman Faith. Gentleman Mrs. Wilhelmina Hark. Dr. Jekyll. At your service. Mr. Dorian Gray. What are you? I'm complicated. And you are? Special Agent Sawyer. Of the American Secret Service. We have trouble. Trouble? I call it sport. Your little test, Mr. King. Your mission is to stop me. That, of course, I cannot permit. I'll not let my evil infect the world. Do you think any of us feel differently? I've seen too much in my life to shock me. How many times do I have to kill these cretins? I will never use me again. Then what good are you? Then the game is on. The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And yes, there will be spoilers. Ha ha, ha ha. God save the Queen. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What's the what's a good memorable line to take away from this film that you were like what what the fuck are they saying? I intend to catch it. Oh, I love that. I love that line. Anything Captain Anything Nemo, Nemo says, says is yeah, good. Is good. Um, <laughs> Can we track it? I intend, I intend to, to catch, catch it. it. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Spies nailed it. Captain Nemo, the city is crumbling. Do we leave? No, we stay and do our job. That dude is bomb, I gotta say. Like, of all the actors, that guy nailed it. Uh, we'll, go first, <laughs> we'll go first opinions on this film. You know what? Let's start with Grant. All right. So uh, this film is kind of a mess. 
just it's all over the place from just really bad writing and just not a very good plot and most of the actors are not great um i did enjoy sean connery because it's hard for me to not enjoy his work just because at the very least you get a character with a fun accent so that's always good and then like we said uh captain nemo was pretty awesome but everyone else was, you know, fairly mediocre. They were people I'd never heard of before, so that's not that surprising either. Haven't didn't recognize anything else that they've been in. So overall, maybe three out of ten, <laughs> maybe four. You know, some parts were fairly entertaining, but a lot of parts were just like, okay, that was just some absolute bullshit. So popcorn, Skyler. Oh man. Um I remember watching this uh, with my parents when I was 11, I believe. I think we made it about 40 minutes in, and my parents said, you know, we're going to turn this off. And I was like, no, no, maybe it would get better. It, it's got to get better. We watched the whole thing. It didn't get better. Yeah, this movie's just terrible. <laughs> um, everyone in it looks really bored. I never quite wrapped my head around why anything was actually happening. And... Um, kind of disappointing when you have all these literary classic characters in one movie and then you just don't do anything cool or interesting or not frustrating with them. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I have no real good thing to say about this movie. Popcorn Michael. I hold League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in a bit of a higher esteem. Uh, this was definitely one of those hit-you-at-the-right-moment-of-adolescence movies. Uh, where I wasn't paying too much attention to the plot. It was more so the visuals. And as far as visuals go, these really take advantage of the fact that 2003 was not a good year for special effects. And so they make heavy use of prosthetics with the hide transformation, which is good. Uh, The Nautilus always comes off a little bit. And when it's underwater, it's fine. When it's above water, it's like... uh, I'm, I'm a big... Uh, I do I do actually like this movie. I think it's a bit long for its tastes. Uh, and I do agree that Sean Connery is the only one kind of like giving a damn when he's talking. And uh, Captain, the guy, I don't even know the guy who plays Captain Nemo, but the fact that he like, he just hammed up every line and it was, it just fit with the mood, right? Well, he's a Bollywood actor, so it kind of fits. Mm-hmm. All the other characters and honestly it got me interested in victorian fiction as a kid um because of this movie i i read the invisible man and then after that i read you know time machine and war of the worlds i don't think i read any of the other books related to this i might have tried to pick up dracula but man that's a bit of a rough read at 12 (laughs) so i just i want to i want to give it more credit than it actually has but i can't (laughs) because Rewatching it, there is no plot. There is no purpose to any action that is being done in the film. Although, what's being done kind of looks nice, and it's pretty action-packed. There are enjoyable parts here and there, but overall, you're like, what? Why? Why did that? Mm, I don't think that makes sense. Mm, no. Why, why is Tom Sawyer here? How did he even get here? Why, what? He's a Secret Service agent. Yeah. <laughs> That's how he knew it was going on. Yeah, okay, just throw him in. Pretty much. Yeah. They don't like show him reporting to anyone. Uh, nice shrug. Okay, uh, let's move on to the money then. With a production budget of $78 million, 
What do we come away with? Um, at the end of the day, after a July 20, uh, 2003 release, it just came out with $66 million. So, almost there. Uh, foreign, it had $112 million, so better. Worldwide, $179 million. That's, that's a $101 million profit, so they at least weren't a complete flop. No, I mean, took a little bit of pocket change from it and a reputation for causing Sean Connery to retire from acting. So, mm. you know, weigh your pros and, best and cons there. There's a lot of things that kind of resulted from this film. There was a lawsuit filed against it that was uh, settled out of court because apparently some guys pitched this film to Fox uh, about 10 years earlier. Uh, for three straight years, and then later, like seven years later, they just make the film. Those guys are like, "We wrote that script. What the fuck? Fuck you guys. <laughs> Why would you want to like be credited with this film? Okay, at that right. point, just take the loss. Um, stay away from it. It's poison. I think this is the first Alan Moore adaptation. Ooh, I think. No um, wonder he's so ornery about it. And this is yeah. This one actually has his name on it. Um, which he, he tried to strike away later. This is, I think this is his first pull away from film adaptations and which gained him such quite a history with his works not wanting to be adapted into film. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like when you start at the bottom, you can either see it as you can only go up or this is never worth it again. Hold on, I think I can pull up Alan Moore's works. Brand Alan... Okay, uh... No, this isn't the first one. The first one is From Hell. Oh. I, I think. That came in 99. Um, I can't remember if it's 99 or 2001. 99. Uh, 2001. October okay. October 19, 2001. Release the book date. was 99. Well, pff, yes. I mean the movie. We're talking movies here. Yeah. Um, and then League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and then V for Vendetta, and then Watchmen. So and then well, they the do killing get better. Joke. Well, oh, mixture mix, mixture of killing. Oh yeah, Killing Joke was released. Box office mojo, you got to put the Killing Joke on here because that did have a release in theaters. Uh, moving on <laughs> to comic books. Uh, this film is based on the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series uh, by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. Uh, there's two volumes of this uh, a third volume as well two most notable volumes um the premise involves the recruitment of britain's most peculiar and fantastic residents to secure the interests of the british empire the first main volume involves the league dismantling a gang war between fu manchu and james moriarty while the second has the league defending the nation from the events of mars attacking similar as to in hg wells War of the Worlds. That actually sounds interesting. Oh, it's great. Fantastic read. If the phrase Victorian England Justice League perks any interest. A little bit of diversions. Mina is not a vampire, with the events having taken place after Dracula when she was indeed cured of vampirism, but disgraced and divorced for having become a vampire unholy creature in the first place. Hyde is even larger and more of an anger-filled brute than in the film. Uh, They use the Griffin, Invisible Man, the original one, instead of the Skinner that they pretty much made for the film. Uh, And he is much less heroic. (laughs) I don't want to, like, spoil any twists and turns, 
but the way it weaves in different fame, the way it weaves in different famous and not so famous fictional characters leads to a fun game of I Spy while enjoying really Moore's masterful storytelling. Um, volume one is good. Volume two is better. There are subsequent series um, like a Nemo spinoff and a volume three that was very small. And the league is still considered in publication with a reboot that came out around 2015. So let's get on to all of these Victorian characters. <laughs> are you ready for this? All right. First off, premiered in this film, kind of ish. All right. Tom Sawyer uh, premiered in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, 1876. Mark Twain. He's movie character only. He wasn't in the book at all. Uh, so moving on. Because he's not British. He's not British. He's not British. Moving on to Dorian Gray. The picture of Dorian Gray uh, premiered in Lippincott's Monthly Magazine in 1890 by Oscar Wilde. So I'm going to be describing these characters as they originally appeared in their first work that they were in, right? Instead of not really their comic book counterpart. Dorian Gray wasn't in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen either. Uh, he sort of cameoed in a cover, I think, um, but never really fleshed out as a character. But Dorian Gray is a young beauty that enraptures the fancy of a painter named Basil, who claims Dorian as his muse. While Gray sits down for a portrait by Basil, he hears Lord Henry Wotton explain how the only thing in life worth living for is hedonistic pleasures. Dorian becomes convinced of Watton's worldview and wishes that his portrait would absorb all of his vices so that he may live on and indulge all of them. Of course, his wish somehow comes true, selling his soul into his portrait. And, you know, it's a very short book. You can read it for some conclusions. I haven't read it. This is me just sort of summarizing everything. So you can kind of get a a background information to his character in the film because they don't really describe any of the characters in the film when you think about it, right? No, not really. It's just like, here's this famous person, and we kind of expect you to know what they're from and not have to go do background research. Yeah, they give you about one sentence. Yeah. Do all the work, people. Yep. So I'm going to do some work for you. Uh, Next up is James Moriarty, premiered in The Final Problem by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in 1893. Moriarty is a crime kingpin and mastermind who protects the criminals of England in offerance of their obedience Holmes deduces the machinations of Moriarty's crime ring, and in a final confrontation on Reichenbach Falls, they both seemingly fall to their death. Every story written after that featuring James, of course, takes place before as a memoir tale. Uh, Despite being in very few stories, Moriarty has been immortalized as Holmes' arch-nemesis and featured in many adaptations since. He's the Napoleon of crime. It's his... uh... I guess, subtitle for him. Moriarty, the Napoleon of crime. Oh. Uh, Next we have Skinner, a.k.a. An Invisible Man, uh, based on the character of Griffin from H.G. Wells' Invisible Man in 1897. They could not secure the rights to put the Griffin uh, Invisible Man on film, so... Those are with the Universal. Yes. So, yeah, there you go, in case you're wondering. Oh, because they made an Invisible Man movie. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, He's considered a universal monster. They said Skinner stole an invisibility formula from a famous scientist and and became an Invisible Man. Not the Invisible Man, which would get them in trouble. 
So the Invisible Man, Griffin, is a student and scientist who steals money from his father to fund his obsession to change a human's refraction index. In a rush, he attempts the formula on himself in success. Invisibility ain't that great when you can't turn it off. He steals some clothes and bandages to wrap around his face and holds up in, in an England Inn, an England Inn, <laughs> to work on a cure. His progress becomes halted when the surrounding villagers question his appearance. In a final confrontation, the surrounding villagers manage to entrap Griffin, even while unclothed and invisible, and beat him to death in a mob's rage. In his death, the formula wears off to reveal his broken and beaten body. Next character. Wow, that's much darker than the movie. Yes. Next character, Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde, premiered in Robert Louis Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. and Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1896. Well, 86. 86. Thank you. I'm a bit far away from the screen. Dr. Jekyll was a man of high class, but unstated vices. In order to avoid scrutiny and indulging in those vices, he developed a potion that would transform him physically and unconfirmedly psychologically into a personality labeled Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde is a sociopath who cares for no soul but himself and commits various acts of crime, including murder. Dr. Jekyll soon discovers he is losing control of the Hyde personality and involuntarily transforms one time in his sleep. The transformation becomes more frequent as the potion he used to revert back becomes less potent. Realizing that Jekyll will soon become Hyde permanently, Jekyll writes a confession before his final transformation. There's a pretty uh, prominent part of the book where Mr. Hyde uh, pretty much just tramples a little girl to death, and that's um, that's just great. <sighs> Uh, the, I really like the, I think of all the tales, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is the most terrifying because it sort of braces the question of, I think like the potion was just an excuse and Mr. Hyde is kind of who Dr. Jekyll actually is. Right. That's, well, it's that's just like turning off his conscience. Yeah. The duality of man. Yeah. That old tale. I don't like know. Dracula's book. fairly terrifying too, so maybe you just have to actually read that book. I'll get around to all these Victorian novels. Uh, <laughs> speaking of that, Mina Harker premiered in Brown Stoker's Dracula, 1897. Mina Murray is a young schoolmistress engaged to a Jonathan Harker. Harker escapes a confrontation with Count Dracula, and with the help of Mina, they begin to investigate the mysterious murders surrounding him. Once they discover his true form of a vampire, Dracula bites Mina three times, dooming her to his fate as an unholy monster. By now, they have enlisted the help of Abraham Van Helsing, a monster hunter who uses the, who uses the new abilities granted by Mina's vampirism to track down Dracula and kill him to reverse the curse put upon her. It's a very simplified version of how great that book probably is, correct? Great, you've actually read it. Yeah, it's pretty good. And now we're going on to Captain Nemo, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870. He is the prince son of an Indian Raja, having designed and built a submarine out of parts from all around the world. He is deeply devoted to his crew and resents all forms of imperialism and imperialist nations. He roams the seas, rarely staying on dry land unless deserted. His tales revolve around many adventures, including sinking enemy British ships, a giant squid attack, and discovering Atlantis. So, how does he 
get roped into protecting the British Empire when clearly he is against this in the in the novels or i mean even in this movie how did he get brought onto this team uh this is predating his hate for imperialism it's actually there's a moment in volume two where he becomes very upset with a british decision on a national scale and it's cover-up that it sort of instigates his sort of um what's it called wandering man attitude he leaves the team after that or like nihilism yeah it's just okay well uh, not so much before that he loved imperialism well kind of he was but he was more devoted to like the flag beforehand and now he's just like nah fuck this yeah like there's a moment there's a there's a there's a plot that happens in volume two with the mars attack most notably the resolution where he goes this is garbage you'll never hear from me again and he goes out and there's a there's a spin-off series that sort of shows Nemo adventures. It just sort of expands on the 20,000 Leagues Under the Seas. So this supposedly uh, predates his 20,000 Leagues adventures. I see. Mm-hmm. Sort of how the Mina Harker stuff, um, what's the opposite of predate? Post-date? Po- thank you. Post-dates her Dracula adventures. So they sort of move the time around, timeline around a bit just to fit things nicely. And finally, Alan Quatermain. H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Minds of 1885. Quartermain is a big game hunter settled in South Africa. He is a frail and wiry man, but no one is his better in marksmanship. He becomes involved in various African affairs with an interest in bringing civilization to the quote-unquote dark continent, but always giving Africans a say in their development. Many stories are standalone adventures, but there is a famous series that involves involves him in the Anglo-Zulu Wars. He has a sharp tongue and critique for the British Empire. He's of the characters that I'm the least familiar with, <laughs> yet the main character of this film. <laughs> I don't, I rarely, I mean, even trying to read up on Alan Quartermain, I couldn't really get a, a full sort of detailed grasp on the base of the character outside of, you know, another British adventurer. And it's the H... Um, H. Ryder Haggard apparently spent a lot of time in Africa, and so his tales are sort of just like a fantasy exploitation of his time there. And that's what I got for characters, ladies and gentlemen. We made it. So, in case you didn't know a lot about your Victorian fictional characters, now you do. Mm-hmm. Music. And if you, oh, Okay. Uh, music for League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is done by South African composer... Trevor Jones, uh, who I was not familiar with before this film came out. Uh, it looks like he is best known for uh, doing the scores for movies like The Dark Crystal. Ooh. Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good early one to uh, start. Uh, Last of the Mohicans is an orchestrator on From Hell, which is a nice uh, mm. Alan Moore tie in there. Uh, or as the, ske- the Skeksis would say, hmm. <laughs> Dark Crystal references. Get at me. Oh. You know, I haven't seen it, so I can't... Uh, That's what I figured. Nobody's really... That was an insincere laugh. I know what that fucking sounds like, Skylar. <laughs> That's a sincere That's, one. So you're basically one of the uh, customers I have to interact with every day. <laughs> Actually, he was a composer on From Health. My bad. Okay. And then he's done G.I.J. in Dark City, whatever. I will let the music more talking about the music than I normally would so the first clip is uh, Dawn of a New Century 
Now, I don't want to jump to a conclusion right off the bat, but I was kind of surprised on how good this film score might actually be in listening to the clips from it. Oh, it's definitely hiding underneath a plot of obscurity. Right. I mean, if if you get caught up in, oh, I don't know, the main plot of the movie and how awful it is, you might just miss how someone is actually uh, bringing their A-game to it. And yeah. it seems to be Trevor Jones's score. Let's talk about how dumb M's plan is real quick. Uh, you okay. want to steal something from all of England's most peculiar, extraordinary gentlemen, so you decide to bring them into one place into a false plot, which is actually your real plot of terrorism, so that they have a chance to stop it. And you're leading them in all the right directions, only to betray them. Now they're all united against you. Also, mm. let's talk about how nothing at all came about of the entire Venice sequence. Like, <laughs> literally nothing. They don't ever go back to that. Like, do the people of Venice know who bombed the shit out of them? Are they just <laughs> okay with this? What happens to half of the city when the other half is completely destroyed? Like, what are all those people going to do now? And they're just like, oh, no, we stopped it from destroying the whole city, so... Basically, it's fine, and we can just move on now. We don't have to keep. Thank us later. About this. We got to get to Siberia. Yeah, and then James Bond can come along in about a hundred years and destroy the other half of Venice. <laughs> <laughs> he would fit well in this because he's a British uh, character. There's an MI6 agent in the book called Campion Bond, so I think it's sort of like a predecessor to a James Bond, like James Bond's grandfather oh, or something, or like the Bond name. Like the Bond is just an agent and a- alias, and they just keep changing right. it. That whole theme before Skyfall just yeah, tanked Skyfall that. tanked it. That's stupid. All right, next next song. On to better things. Capturing Mister Hyde. Lost in such a dumpster fire of a movie. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. I will say that that uh, scene, though, where they catch uh, Mr. Hyde was pretty well done. Everything about that scene I have no flaws with, which is kind of surprising for this movie in general. Yeah. It, it seems yeah, I would not talk shit about that scene, <laughs> unlike basically anything else. Uh, I, so... This this score is supposed to sort of emulate a Victorian England. How would you say it's uh, achieving that? Is there a distinctive sound of Victorian England? I imagine mm. something that would uh, sort of bring steampunk to the mind. Right. Um, yeah, nothing I fished out uh, comes to mind. Unfortunately, uh, when you say Victorian England, my first instinct is like magic to jump to like the harpsichord. Hmm. It's not... 
I don't know if that's like completely accurate, but I didn't hear any of that from what I saw. And steampunk, well, not so much. Yeah, I think steampunk just because of the amount of technology that is um, brought to the front of this film and sort of advanced uh, uh, several years past its time uh, for the sake of um, excitement, Uh, having machine guns and cars in 1899. uh, Because 2003, who cares? Yeah, which which were both in sort of like their prototype phases at this point and were not nearly as effective as they were portrayed in the film, especially rockets. (laughs) We'll get to that later. No, I think this... um... This movie does a lot better in emulating the sound of a uh, 2003 superhero blockbuster than mm-hmm. anything. Unfortunately, I don't think we have a unified kind of sound for any steampunk just because we don't get anything consistently in that genre. No, there isn't really a go-to steampunk movie. I mean, Rocketeer is about the only thing I can think of. There's the Rocketeer, and then that's more... Um, that's pulpy, though. Alan Silvestri. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I don't. I wouldn't even know what to uh, make of it if I was on scoring duties for something like that. So good job, Trevor However, Jones. yes. Um, one track I did want to include is uh, in reading that Trevor Jones is South African, and Alan Quartermain, his adventures uh, go through South Africa, or Africa, not just South Africa, excuse me. Um, the track Son of Africa has a lot of that nation's, uh, excuse me, continents, sounds mixed into it. And we don't usually get too great a variety with uh, this uh, type of sound on the uh, podcast. So I just had to include it. <laughs> Really don't hear that song anywhere. <laughs> what? No, I, That's a great song. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it's not even at the uh, the end of the movie when they bury him, is it? I would assume it might be playing very softly in that, or that might be a lyric song. I don't think it's a lyric I don't, song. I don't remember that song in the movie. Mm, it's it's fairly late in the uh, the soundtrack, so... It might be uh, a I'm credit sure it's song. intended for the end. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a. I think it's. I think it's the last credit song. It sounds like the last credit song. Oh, and here I was ready to, you know, like praise this movie for trying something new, uh, not doing your typical sad orchestral sound with for like a death scene, and just like Marvel, it puts all its best stuff in the credits. <sighs> God damn it! Well, another cliche. We'll just have to break soon. At least, at least it's well. I mean, no. There's certain there's certain superhero films that break that mold. I think of Dread. Dread put most. I mean, Dread's just a great fucking film. <laughs> so good. I have to revisit that one. I've revisited like every three years. <laughs> I, I love that movie so much. It's so it's in my top five. Good. That's for sure. Nice. 
Okay. Any more music for us today, Sky Guy? Nah, I'm done. <laughs> All right. Grant, ball is in your court. Science, oh, you have a field day, don't you? Uh, well, I just found something that is pretty interesting, so we'll get to it in a little bit. But um, first, I want to talk about the Invisible Man, because he's the H.G. Wells character, and H.G. Wells is one of my favorite authors, especially from this era, as well as the explanation for why he's invisible is just complete bullshit he, and so well it, we're gonna we're gonna delve into that first just real quick all right he is one of the best hp uh science fiction writers and definitely the least racist one that's true um uh, i i love h.g wells's books however as far as like actual science fiction goes they're just nonsense other than maybe war of, <laughs> war the, worlds. of the worlds yeah uh um, which is why i tend to think of him more in this uh romantic science fiction mm-hmm. category rather than just straight science fiction mm-hmm. because typically what he'll do is take some sciencey sounding words and use them as the basis for some ridiculous invention that Light refraction index or like the uh uh anti-gravity panels that they use in the first men in the moon which are literally just like making something that repels gravity and they use that to propel themselves to the moon oh i was like okay well that's just utter nonsense but (laughs) it was a good story apart from like that bullshit anyway the uh the invisible man what's his name griffin 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 is a former medical student who gets really interested in optics and eventually comes up with some chemical formula that allows him to change his index of refraction to that of the air and therefore makes him invisible. Yep. That makes no sense. That that statement right there just does not make any sense. <laughs> well, Be- what's your refraction? So refraction is how much the speed of light changes when it goes through a medium. Okay. So for air it doesn't change very much. Like the index of refraction is point like zero, 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 two. Hence we can't see air. Correct. Well, no, because refraction has nothing to do with, uh, visible light being able to see anything. So okay. it just, you have light going through a vacuum. It's going the speed of light. It hits something and it slows down because it hit that as it goes through. So mm. the index of refraction of glass is about 1.4 and that's still clear. So obviously it has nothing to do uh, the index of refraction of water is about 1.3. We're 70% water. Our index of refraction is also about 1.3. Yet we are completely opaque. Oh, it has nothing to do with visibility. Nothing at all with how opaque or transparent you are. So just like, that's what I mean with H.E. Wells, just like throwing these science sounding words into his novels and being like, yes, index of refraction change. This makes him invisible. But in reality, that has really nothing to do with how transparent or opaque uh, a substance is Mm -hmm. on the other hand things like how well you absorb light and how well you reflect light uh, that does have a lot to do with it and so the goal for being transparent would be that you neither reflect nor absorb light and that way the light would pass straight through you and therefore you would be invisible and that is pretty much what happens with glass uh no light in the visible spectrum gets absorbed by glass it just goes straight through Mm -hmm. Uh, ultraviolet light does so bees 
for example, might see glass as just a solid object and not as uh, something clear. So I'm guessing if you put glass in front of a bee, they would not run into it because bees see an ultraviolet. Mm. Um, however, glass does reflect some light, so that's why you see your reflection in it. Okay. So what about... Basically, the Invisible Man, their explanation is BS. There's no way to change how well you absorb light without changing your chemical makeup, so that's just impossible. Sure. All right. The rest of everything I have to talk about just has to do with Nemo and all his technology and how a lot of it is just kind of ridiculous. Ah, so he needs he Nemo splaining to do? He he Nemo splaining to do. That was that was good. Um we will get to rockets. Just because of what I recently found about the history of guided rockets, we'll put that last because okay. it's pretty funny. So we'll start with his automobile. Okay. Which, first of all, they're just like, oh, man, what is this? And he's just like, oh, I, I call it an automobile. Automobile. Well, for one thing, the first automobile uh, was invented in 1769, actually, and it was steam-powered. Ooh. So Mercedes Benz? No, that the um Carl Benz developed the first gasoline powered automobile in 1886. Oh, 100 years later? Yeah. Uh, actually 120 years later. Um so steam powered car was first, not very practical, obviously. You have yeah. to have huge boilers on it. That's why it didn't catch on. Um 1807, a French guy um, <laughs> Nice. His name was Francois Isaac de Rivaz. All right. If I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Anyway, he designed a car powered by an internal combustion engine fueled by hydrogen. Oh, damn. That's dangerous. That is a terrible idea. (laughs) It's a lot of explosions. Yes. Hit a spark and boom. Also did not catch on. Uh, Well, let's hopefully it didn't. (laughs) Yeah. That was 1807. And then, like I said, 1886, Carl Benz, uh, one of the co-founders of Mercedes-Benz, uh, developed the first gasoline-powered automobile. So, automobiles should not have been a new thing in 1899 when this movie took place, and therefore his automobile is not a very impressive well, thing. Well, they weren't on the roads, so not a whole lot of people had seen them. They don't go onto the roads until, what, 1912? Is that they the They don't Model become, T? like, common until the Model T, but royalty would have had them. Oh, Everybody true. who was rich would have been like, oh, I have to get my hands on this new fad because it's... So much more luxurious than a well, uh, carriage. None of them are royalty except for Nemo. Yeah, but either way, you would have seen them. Maybe not Quarterman because uh, he's in Africa. Yeah, but especially in America, Tom Sawyer would have seen these with mm-hmm. the very wealthy, and everybody who's just in the city in London would have seen these. Okay, so and it was Tom Sawyer who asked what it was. Oh, what a prick! <laughs> also. <laughs> I have no idea what this is, but suddenly I can drive it through the streets of Venice. Yeah, bullcrap. Because they're all going to be manual transmission, which any of you who have never tried manual transmission, (laughs) uh, let me tell you, it's not something you instantly pick up. It does take some practice. Uh, So, yeah. Also, with that car, it is, like his ship, very impractically long. (laughs) And cornering through the streets of Venice would not have worked that well. Tom Sawyer would have gone straight into a canal way (laughs) sooner than he did. 
Also, the fact that he didn't die during the crash. They flipped the car and they he's in a convertible. He's in a fucking convertible <laughs> in a car in 1899, which does not have seatbelts because seatbelts weren't a thing until the 1960s. So. Bye. You're he's, dead. He's dead. He died. No air, no airbags, nothing. Nope. He was. And because that, like the way it crashed was pretty accurate because the engine's in the front. And yeah. so when you drive cars off cliffs like that, they definitely like lean forward and fall nose first. And which then, if, then causes it to flip. So that's that was accurate, but just him getting up and being like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm fine." Because I'm Tom Sawyer was bullshit. Just okay. <laughs> I'm American. Okay. Nautilus. So, the Nautilus. In some ways, very practical. In other ways, completely impractical. <laughs> uh, as a ship, I have no problems with it. Really, uh, it's submarines have been around. Yep, it uh, is powered by turbines. Actually. Uh, we'll get to it as a submarine in a second. But as a ship with its design and its shape, there's no reason it wouldn't be able to go relatively fast. However, it would not have been able to go from Paris to Venice in three days. I don't <laughs> care what your ship is. Uh, <laughs> modern ships have modern like battleships. So ships of maybe a similar size have a top speed of 28 knots, which for those of you that don't know what that speed is, um, who aren't sailors? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's thirty-two miles per hour. Oh, so not very fast at all. And <laughs> going all the way around Europe to get to Venice uh, is not going to happen in three days. No. Um, also, the canals of Venice. In the canals of Venice, his ship is way too big. No, have, if you have ever been to Venice, and Venice is really small. It's tiny. It's I a tiny little island. Looked up a map of Venice just to like give myself com some context. The scale of that map was five hundred meters. Five hundred <laughs> meters. <laughs> oh God, that's a third of a mile, and that was the scale they had on this map, which showed the entirety of Venice. So, dear God, it is not a very large city. There's no roads. Uh, so like even a car, like how they got like. There's nothing built for cars on Venice. Um, and <laughs> you're right. Like, what happens when he's got to make a fucking turn? Yeah. there's Okay. So not only would his car not be able to turn very well, his ship would not be able to turn, period. It would go <laughs> straight in and be stopped at the first, like, even tiny angle. And... <laughs> Obviously, because there are canals everywhere, there are bridges everywhere yeah. in Venice. And you saw like him kind of like getting stopped because he was brushing under the top of a particularly tall bridge. Most of them are not that way. They're just right over the water, just barely big enough for like gondolas and small boats to go under. So, yeah, him just that being in Venice was nonsense. The ship should have been the thing that was just completely destroying Venice. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, submarines. Submarines have been around, interestingly enough, since the middle of the 17th century. Makes so sense. they're very old. They were first designed by a French physicist, uh, Denis Papin, in 1690. Ooh. Was kind of the first really successful submarine design. What I have a problem with, with Nemo's submarine design, was that he built the inside like a palace, which means it weighs a ton. <laughs> <laughs> like you just look at it there's all sorts of marble everywhere and it's just like that is an absurd amount of weight for this which is going to make keeping its buoyancy exceptionally difficult and 
the way his ship is shaped works really well for like cutting through the water and moving fast, but it is very poor design for being able to go up and down in the water and change your buoyancy. Mm. Um, it's very flat on the top. It's well, very flat. Um, it's also not particularly wide. So you, you'd have a hard time having air chambers that you can fill with water and dispel with water <laughs> evenly displaced enough to get, you know, even sinking and rising, okay. changing your depth. So, when they blow a bunch of holes in it and they repair that thing in how much time? Well, okay, so they locked it out and then Hyde went in and activated the pumps to clear the water out. So I don't necessarily have a huge problem with that. Uh, I'm a little shocked that it didn't sink faster with how much <laughs> it weighed. So, and those are some pretty impressive hydro pumps that are able to get rid of all that water that fast without more water coming in to replace it. Mm. So that was, you know, technology outside its time, I guess. But I guess that's the point of Nemo as a character. Uh, so solar panels. Yeah, his ship is apparently powered by solar panels. So no, kudos, it's not. kudos to him for being environmentally conscious. It's not powered by solar panels. You're right. It's not. That's, uh, <laughs> that's nonsense. So the same... Modern battleship. Uh, I believe the one I looked up where I got these numbers was the Missouri class. Sure. Um, for that output to get 32 miles per hour, it requires 90 megawatts of power to do that. Using best modern solar cells that we have today, you can get maybe a thousand watts per square meter, which is pretty good. That requires 90 million square meters to supply 90 megawatts of power. To one battleship. To one ship. Um, how, how much surface area is that? That is twice the surface area in square miles of Mankato, Minnesota. So, <laughs> Can we have a better place of example? I mean, it works well for all of us. We're from Mankato. Yeah. But uh, so, Like in football fields. Maybe 1,800 football fields. Okay. That uh, makes sense. So, yeah. I mean, look up random small town of about 70,000 people. That's probably about the same square mileage as uh You, you and I have a different Mankato. description of small town if it's got 70,000 people in it. I mean, that's how big Mankato is. I so. know, but I wouldn't consider this a small town. Either way. Town of about the size of 70,000 people will roughly be about the same size as Mankato. And imagine twice that land area would be required to get the power output for Nemo's ship. Big ass ship. And he's also storing this power in batteries, which are highly inefficient at that time. <laughs> and so even if he has modern day batteries, that is going to require a huge amount of space on his ship, which eventually you get into this... Uh, cost per space ratio that you're looking at and it's just very impractical bye to bye, power sink. that with solar panels anything that big is just impractical for solar panels it's why modern ships don't use solar panels to power them they use nuclear energy because it's way more efficient okay and finally the fun one rockets guided rockets so we had two examples of guided Rocket rockets Man. uh the first one being the rocket they shoot in the opening sequence when they blow up all those blimps. Yep. Um, it's got a, like a cable tied to it. It has like a cable it. tied to it. And I was a little confused when I saw that scene of whether it was an actual guided rocket. 
He's just sort of maneuvering the cable a little bit to shift the rocket. And it doesn't maybe. matter because these targets are fucking huge. Yeah, so like maybe it was supposed to be guided in some way, but the best like electricity, we have very rudimentary electric lines in uh in eighteen ninety nine. So maybe it's connected by a cable that you are then controlling by some remote. That's not outlandish. I'm sure that was one of the first thoughts of people building uh handheld rocket launchers in the early twentieth century. Uh how do I aim this thing? Uh which honestly not the most ludicrous idea as we'll get to in a second. What is it? Um but get, so get I, don't, it now. I don't necessarily have a problem with that rocket scene just because he doesn't appear to be controlling it. He just seems to shoot it off. The bigger problem is Captain Nemo's rocket that blows up the building that stops this bullshit domino effect in uh, <laughs> Venice. And that is way before its time. The first, first of all, the first rockets that were like used in battle were the V1 and V2 rockets developed by the Nazis in World War II. And those were not very well guided. Also rudimentary guidance systems were done with radio waves so possible he could have been so assuming he's maybe 50 years ahead of his time yeah uh he has some (laughs) rockets that he's able to guide with radio waves which isn't the most outlandish thing what again get more outlandish than 50 years ahead of your technology he's captain nemo though and it is fiction so like Within 50 years, sometimes I'll let it slide, especially if your character is supposed to be known for having these incredible technologies. You know, if it's just the average Joe, if like Tom Sawyer shows up and he's just like, I have these guided rockets, (laughs) uh, then I might call bullshit. Fuck you, movie. So, but one thing I wanted to point out, when they were trying to develop guided rockets um, and they were doing these things with uh, radio waves and probably doing stuff with electric cables... Eventually, it got into infrared and GPS or how we do things now. Uh, B.F. Skinner, who you may have heard of, he is a, a psychiatrist, very famous psychiatrist. He tried to invent a pigeon-guided missile. <laughs> what? Yes. <laughs> like he tied a rocket to a pigeon? So, oh, no. Um, this was called... Project Pigeon in World War II. Um, Apparently, what he would do was train these pigeons by operant conditioning to recognize a target. And then he would state, he would put these pigeons in front of a screen. And when they saw the target, they would peck the screen with their beaks. And as long as the target remained in the center of the screen, the screen would not move. But if the bob began to go off track, um, the image would move to the edge of the screen. The pigeons would follow the image pecking at it, which would move it to the center of the screen again uh-huh. and change the direction of the bomb. Oh, my gosh. What? This did not work very yeah. well. This, <laughs> this is like them pressing the button? Yeah. It's just them like on the missile kind of guiding it. <laughs> it's bullshit. You know, it's, they, they had a similar project in World War II where they tied bats to bombs um, and just sort of unleashed a bunch of them. <laughs> 
And well, I mean, that was just like hopeful ball. thinking, like, okay, maybe these bats will go land on enemy targets. But uh, they had some sort of fair, like they had some sort of uh, pheromone that attracts bats. So they must have like thrown a pheromone grenade into the enemy target, and, and then like, like oh. release all these bats with bombs. And people are like, oh, bats! So, oh crap! <laughs> um, however, this. This project, research in this project, was continued until 1953. What? <laughs> when it was finally canceled, when electronic guidance systems were proven to be significantly more effective. <laughs> so. I hope so. Well, okay. It was canceled in 1944 first, and then the Navy picked it back up in 1948 and continued it until 1953. <laughs> Maybe this B.F. Skinner was onto something. Quick, get me all your carrier pigeons. So, <laughs> hey, guys, maybe blowing pigeons up isn't, like, the coolest thing. They didn't blow them up. They were, like, used as sort of, like, the manual button pressers so that nobody had time to do that shit. The, uh, well, they were actually on the missile because they didn't have a way to uh, send the signals to the missiles to guide them. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. The pigeons died. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, yeah. Okay. The National Defense Research Committee saw the idea to use pigeons in uh, guide bombs as very eccentric and impractical, <laughs> but still contributed $25,000 to the research. Maybe they have something here, too. Quick, don't just brush them off initially. What if this turns into something? We don't want to say that we weren't there at the ground floor. So B.F. Skinner said that while they had some success in training the pigeons, complained that our problem was no one would take us seriously. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder why, Skinner. I wonder why. So It's a hard knock life. So that's a little science, a little history as well. So Mm -hmm. hopefully everyone learned something. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're over time, so we're going to wrap things up as it is right now. Uh, Super Movie Studies is recorded and produced by us. I don't even have a name for this anymore. I got to get like, (sighs) let's talk about the iTunes. Yes. Mentioning iTunes. Go on iTunes. Rate us. Five stars, please. And that's also where you will be easiest to find all of our, uh, podcasts. And... They come out every Monday, so start your week off right with Super Movie Studies Podcast. <laughs> Twitter! Oh, stay in touch with us via Twitter, at Super M Studies. Uh, let t- Twitter Tom know what futuristic technology you wish Captain Nemo had in this movie. If you say sex toys, you get extra points. <laughs> Well, yeah, what would be useful in stopping the Venice explosion? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. You know, something, some, some piece of te- technology that would have been better in the film. <laughs> or, right. or a Victorian-era have... hero that you would like to see instead of Tom Sawyer. I like that one better. Right. Either one works. And one of those. Uh, that's it. Um, we're working on... I'm currently playing around with maybe going back to the Facebook page, maybe going back to the subreddit. Uh, in terms of sort of uh, a communication hub for our episodes, because right now all you have to do is consume via iTunes, um, and all you have to do to reach out to us is via Twitter. Uh, you don't really have a chance to see our show notes or anything like that or make any um, lengthy comments. I'm not checking the email anymore, so that's not even great, because all that did was get flooded with spam. Um, so perhaps... 
We'll have some more information in the future. Uh, the 100th episode is coming up. We have a fun surprise waiting for you. It's going to involve a lot of work for me, so you better fucking like it. Uh, <laughs> and that'll do it today. I'm your host, Michael Maurer. James Keller Hutzman. And Grant Austin. And I hope you all have a super week.